Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It's a little bit dark here from the Monday Match Analysis studios because my light literally just went out. That is unfortunate. What is not unfortunate is we have a few good things to talk about uh, today. There were three champions from the weekend, and it's been a little bit while since uh, it's been a little it's been a little while since I've done a uh, a technical analysis. Um, and I think that's what most people like most about this channel. Uh, so I want to get back into that. I'm going to take the three champions, Tsitsipas, Stefano Tsitsipas, Karen Hachinov, and Kyle Edmund. And I'm going to just point out one thing that they did really well. One thing about their games that's really hard to handle for opponents. Um, and I'll use some match footage to, to, to illustrate that. The next two things are Roger Federer's hand injury, which he kind of revealed to a um, German media outlet a few days ago. And the last thing is the Wimbledon rule change. 12-all, fifth set at Wimbledon. I want to start with Federer. Because Federer leads. That's, that, that, that's how it goes in, um, in, in, in newsworthiness here. Wimbledon rule change... Three, the, the three finals winners, I think Federer leads. And I just made that decision. So the one thing I'll say is, first of all, um, his comments did come as a surprise to me uh, because I, you know, I, I didn't really see any, any sign of injury. But um, at the same time, what he said is consistent with kind of what was wrong with his game. And primarily, if you look at the Kevin Anderson match, uh, I think that's the one that, that really jumps out the most to me. I mean, he his forehand was, was awful in that match. It was the real reason that he lost that match was the forehand. And what Roger Federer has said to this German media outlet is that his right hand was injured and it was really bothering him on his forehand in particular. So that stuff's all consistent. I don't want to harp on it too much other than to point out um, or to, to kind of debunk something that is far too often spread in the tennis world. And that is that an injury is an excuse because an injury really isn't an excuse. Injuries are part of the game. So when Djokovic hurt his elbow, that is not an excuse. When Nadal has his knee problems, that's not an excuse. And it's the same thing for Federer. If Federer is injured, that is not an excuse. That is a shortcoming. 
That's how you need to look at injuries in tennis. Some players will make more money. Some players will have better careers because they get injured less. It's not an excuse. It's an explanation. And there's a really big difference. I'm, I'm often impressed with how players are able, and this is a separate point, but I'm often impressed with how players are able to keep their mouth shut when they have small injuries. Because as a competitor, you want to say all the credit in the world to my opponent, but this is why I couldn't play as well as I wanted to. And I think that all, I think that most of the of the champions in in this sport do a do a really admirable job of keeping their injuries pretty low key, keeping keeping it quiet. Um, so Federer didn't say anything until now. I really don't blame I don't blame him for saying anything um, because uh, or for saying something uh, because I think it's really hard as a competitor to just not let anyone know, you know, why you may have been having some struggles. I don't know. Uh, that's that's just me. So I don't know how you guys feel about that. Um, I think the, the the most important point I can make is it's not an excuse. It's an explanation and health is part is players are held account uh, accountable for their health so it's not oh Federer's making an excuse for himself it's not gill's making an excuse for Federer. that'd be kind of ridiculous because i didn't say any of this Federer did but the point remains the same injuries aren't excuses let's talk about wimbledon i don't want to go too long on this wimbledon rule either uh i think first of all it's not very consequential because it's very rare that we'll see a match go to 12-all in a fifth set. When it does happen, it's very likely we'll have John Isner in the match. But I think what this came down to is Wimbledon saw what happened last year and they realized that what happened last year was unacceptable. And they'd be right in saying that. What happened last year was unfair to a few parties. First of all, it was unfair to Djokovic and Nadal who had to wait, 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 wait all day on Friday. Then they had to take the court with the roof closed. They had to stop the match in the middle due to the curfew. Then the next day, should should the roof have been open? Should the roof have been closed? That controversy um, kind of boiled over. And then they had to play again Sunday. So, three day, so the waiting, the three days back-to-back, -back, the roof stuff, it wasn't fair to them. The second person it was unfair to was Kevin Anderson, who won the match, but you know, you can't expect a player to play a, uh, a match over six hours and then be able to play another match at, at the highest level in, in two days later. And the third person it was unfair to was John Isner, whose entire summer, in my opinion, was ruined by this singular match. He kept having these fits of fatigue where the, the, the MPH on his serve was extremely low. And even in Atlanta, which he won, he would have these fits of fatigue that he was able to get through. In Washington, D.C., ousted early. Um, Canada, I believe he had to skip for rest. Cincinnati, I don't think he did very well there. So, John, who has his favorite time of year, um, is the, the that's terrible English, but John's favorite time of year is that 
American hardcore swing after Wimbledon, and he was completely depleted for it. Luckily, he was able to kind of recover his gas tank in time for the U.S. Open. But it wasn't fair to those three parties. So they had to make a change, and they made the change. I commend Wimbledon. It, 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 is, it continuously shows that it's a, a, a well-run tournament, and it's the class of, of the sport. So kudos to Wimbledon. I haven't read a, a compelling argument against this rule change, but if you have one, comment section. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. All right. Let's get to this match footage. I'm very excited for this. Uh, there were three finals. Uh, we'll begin with Karen Hatchinov in Moscow. Very happy for Hatchie, uh, winning his hometown tournament. That's always um, that's always a beautiful thing. He defeated uh, Adrian Manorino. 6-2, 6-2. Wasn't close. Blew him off the court. Um, so let's see what we got here. Ah, yes. The backhand cross court on the run. Open stance. Sets up the overhead winner. So I think the reason I chose this point is because Karen Hatchinov hits a shot in that rally that I think very few people are able to hit. I think very few players of his type are able to hit. If you're a 6-2 player, um, you know, a more mobile baseliner, a, more def a, a, a grinder type, then I guess it's not uncommon. But Karen Hatchinov is a big serve, big forehand guy, a guy with a huge game. And the shot he hits in this rally, to me, is the shot of a polished and, and skilled baseliner. And that is this open stance, cross-court backhand from a defensive position so strong um, and also the movement incorporated with it, where he's, he's able to, um, I mean, if you, if you look at this Manorino forehand, it's a short, he gets a short ball here, he steps into it, places it well, and Manorino, I mean, Hatchinov just gets to the spot so well and drives off of his left foot so well. If we watch it again here, boom. And look how deep and strong that backhand is. So he flips the point. What we see there is we see Hatchinoff in a defensive position. And with that backhand, watch him flip the point now. Look what that sets up. Midcourt forehand for Hatchie. And now he takes control. And there's the finish. So I think he's so tremendously talented. I think he's going to be a top five player in his career. Um, I'm, I, I, I think... It's almost a no-brainer. Considering how good that backhand is, considering how well he's able to generate um, when he when his forehand is, is put in the right positions, which I think his game is so big around his forehand that he's able to put his forehands in the right positions. What I mean by that is Hachinov, um, when it comes to his forehand, it loses a lot when he's on the run. It loses a lot when it's very low. Um, what he likes is manageable forehands where he's able to set his feet when he's able to, to, to hit it, um, high shoulder height. He's tremendous. Uh, some, some players like their forehand more, um, hip, hip level, 
but I feel like Hatchinov probably likes it a little bit higher, shoulder height, even above the shoulders. Hatchinov with his extreme Western grip, um, he kind of enjoys that forehand. So his forehand isn't the most versatile weapon, but when you serve as big as Hatchinov does, when you have that, that backhand, which can be such a big weapon, you're going to set up your forehand, you're going to put your forehand in positions where it can thrive, and, and it's a big shot. I mean, he can, he can crush that shot. Um, and he moves so well for a six foot six guy. He can run around, he can run around his backhand. He can use small adjustment steps. He can defend a little bit as well. Uh, so that's a top five player you're looking at right there. And that point I think showcased why, uh, he's one of those prototypes, a big man who can do little man things. Who can hit that shot at six foot six? Um, probably Marin Cilic, but that's, that's maybe it. I don't know if Delpo could, could muster that amount of power on, on the two-hander that Hatchinov just mustered. Um, certainly, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. I don't think anyone else can really hit that shot. So that's a very special shot. Let's go now to Stefanos Tsitsipas. He won Stockholm. He defeated Ernest Golbis. Good to see Golbis playing some good tennis, making a final. What do we got here? The backhand. The backhands, rather, from Tsitsipas. The quality isn't great on this. I'm sorry for that. But this is the best I've seen Tsitsipas hit his backhand. And it's progressed so nicely from when he upset Dominic Team in Barcelona and I reviewed the footage and I was watching his backhand and I had some concerns. And then even when I watched him in DC against Sasha Zverev and I expressed to, to you guys that, that there are concerns about the backhand, the way he hits his backhand in this rally is exceptional. And specifically, you have a choice when you, when, when you hit... Um, or I guess I should say there's something very distinct technically about hitting it on the rise and getting uh, catching a ball early versus dropping back and hitting a ball when it's kind of on its way down. And I'd say when you get a ball on, the, on, on its way down, what you have to do is you need to drop the racket head under the ball. And, you know, you need to kind of brush up on the ball a little bit more. Usually, there are exceptions. Um, but that's what Tsitsipas would do a lot of the time. He would kind of back up. He'd hit a very loopy ball. He, it, it was a very kind of brush-up backhand. And it would have a lot of shape. But at the highest level, professionals are going to step in. And if you, don't hit a, if you don't have a very strong ball, if you don't have pace, if you don't have heaviness, if you just hit kind of a, 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 a loopy backhand... Players are going to, to like, like a Sasha Zverev is going to step in and take his two-hander early, like a laser. He's going he's gonna to really, like, there is a big disparity in, in the pace between those backhands. What Tsitsipas does in this rally is he takes the ball on the rise and comes over it and closes the racket face a little bit and flattens it out a little bit. It's kind of the adjustment that Federer made in 2017 with, with his backhand. Watch how Tsitsipas takes these balls on the rise and watch how he gets on top of the ball and, and hits them with less shape, which 
I think when you're not defending is important. When you're defending, yeah, shape is great. Gives you time to recover, gives you more margin. Maybe you can kick the ball up and, and get it out of your opponent's uh, contact zone or, or strike zone, rather. Um, but when you're hitting, you know, your, your trades or, or when you're trying to attack, shape is normally not your friend. And Tsitsipas used to use too much of it. I really like how strong he was and how he accelerated on this point. Check this out. This one especially. Strong. Actually, that one even more so. Look at him step in. Look at his left foot. Watch his left foot on these. He creates forward momentum for himself. See him moving diagonally into the court? Not so much on that one, but look at this one. This one especially. And then he pulls it line. Gorgeous. Gorgeous by Tsitsipas. I mean, that forehand is so massive and such a special weapon that Tsitsipas possesses. Um, the backhand is lagging a little bit, but he hit it so well in this tournament. And some of that could have been with a low-bouncing indoor hardcourt. So, um, we'll see. Third and final match is Kyle Edmond against Gail Monfi. Oh, you know what? It's not Monfi. It's Monfis. You are supposed to pronounce the S. Um, I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. I, I, I thought the French, if there's a consonant at the end, they get rid of it. But apparently not. So, Gail Monfis. What do we have? Ah, yes. Now, this one's a two-way street here. I know I've been complimenting... The winners. This is this is Kyle Edmund on a on a big game point three four. He would end up winning this match in a third set tiebreak. Uh, that's his first title, I believe. Kyle Edmund's first ATP World Tour title. So congratulations to Eddie. Uh, the same is true for for Tsitsipas too. So so I think all these guys won for the first time. Um, but what I want to highlight here first before I compliment Edmund. This return by Monfils is unacceptable. Slow second serve. And he rolls it in there. He's way back behind the baseline. At, at the Antwerp um, lettering or painting. He uses that kind of... It, it's weak. I don't know what else to tell you. It's weak. Now, if... Gale was trying to defend himself to his coaches. He'd say, I was just trying to roll it back to Edmund's backhand. Uh, look look where I hit it. Cross court, I'm just trying to get it to the backhand. Well, why didn't it work? Because if two things. First of all, if you're going to stand eight feet behind the baseline, that's more time that the ball has to travel to the other side of the court, more time for Edmund to run around the backhand. And the second thing is, too, too, too loopy. What did we just talk about with, with Pass's backhand? I mean, Monfils, if he's going to get it to Edmund's backhand, there's no way he can stand on the back fence and, and hit it loopy. Edmund's footwork is too good, and especially with his mindset, always looking for the forehand, he's going to get that every time. So on a second serve like this, Monfils really needs to be able to take a, take a kick serve um, a kick serve, second serve on, on the rise. I mean, it, I think 
this is just an, an essential shot in men's tennis. Now, you don't need it always, but if you you might say like Gil, what about Dominic Team? What about Rafa Nadal? They stand far back, but they rip the ball. You can't stand that far back and then decelerate on a backhand return. Look at him decelerate here. That wasn't full except well, it wasn't as bad as I I thought it was. But still, too loopy, not strong enough, and it sets up Edmund with this incredible forehand, which is really I mean. Now, the second one, the second one was even more impressive because Edmund's got a pretty Western grip. It's pretty, it's pretty Western. And Western grips normally struggle with the low balls a little bit. This was even tougher because it was inside the court. So this um, mid-court forehand, and it was not the first time I saw Edmund uh, hit this shot in this match, I think that this is extremely high level of difficulty. So that one's huge, but this one's tough. And he, he hits it beautifully. So props to uh, Kyle Edmund. Basel is coming up. Or it's not coming up. It, it, it started today. Um, but I think a pretty big tournament for Roger Federer. Uh, just because things haven't gone so well for him recently. Um, so, for sure, we'll have our eye on, on, on Roger this week, and uh, hopefully I can get some videos towards the end of the week. Um, the reason this video will be 20 minutes and not 30 minutes is because there's no comments, because I didn't make a, a video during the week. So, hopefully we'll get back to, back to that routine. Video during the week, comments on that video, um, I can do my thing and then re reply to the comments um, on Monday. Another thing I want to pitch before I go. Uh, Jeff Salzenstein, Tennis Evolution. I want you to check out his channel. Um, we're going to be doing some collaborations, so subscribe to his channel and look out for our uh, our collaborations. We it might be kind of an every Sunday thing, uh, but but he is a tremendous tennis mind. He um, he's a great coach and he he was a great player. He's also very well sourced, which is something that I enjoyed so much about our conversation on Sunday. Um, because he has so many relationships in the sport, uh, he really gets great information. So subscribe to Tennis Evolution, Jeff Salzenstein, and look out for our collaborations. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.